Hello and welcome back to another episode of FDU. I'm Rob. And I'm Ken. And we're here to take you back to school. Hello and welcome back to Fire Department University podcast. It's uh, It's been a minute, Ken, since you and I have last recorded. Um, I think we might have recorded right before the pandemic really got hot and heavy down here in Florida. Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, yeah. <laughs> so um, what's new with you? How you been? Uh, doing fine, just dealing with the whole pandemic thing and trying to find some normalcy as this whole thing continues. Yeah, yeah we're doing the same thing. It's, uh, I guess, the new, the new norm, as I've heard it called. So that's like... Wearing masks on every call now, N95s or P100s, so I think that's going to be the way of our career till we retire. I'm thinking it's possible. <laughs> I'm hoping not, but you know, it's uh... so. Anyway, today's topic, we're going to jump right into it. It's uh, going to be rapid intervention, and you know, we got a lot of talking points on it, and and it's one of those things that we train on it. We'll you know find that like the fire department will start wanting to hit it pretty hard a lot of training maybe they had a near miss and then that really kind of prompts everybody and, and motivates everybody to get back out there and do writ training and writ drills and all that with their department or their crew but then it kind of like fades away a little bit you know out of sight out of mind kind of thing and since i've been doing it that's that's what i've gathered you know uh since the fire department and many many years ago i was uh really really into the writ i was on a writ competition team I rewrote the uh, writ SOP for my department at the time, and I rewrote, I wrote a whole entire writ training program for the department with drills and whatnot. I mean, I was studying everything from the Nance drill to the, the Pittsburgh drill, you name it. Anything that we could use to throw a firefighter into, I guess, take them out of their, their, their comfort zone. And that was what we were doing, and that's what I had written. But you know what? We figured it's about time that we kind of talk about it on this podcast as well, because... And we'll probably have to visit this topic again in the future because there's just so much to talk about it. We can't fit it in to our, you know, normal 45 minute to an hour long episode. So, but I mean, Ken, have you ever had the experience of being involved in a Mayday call? Fortunately not. No, I have not. Okay. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, me neither. Uh, and I know we were talking off, off microphone a little while ago before we were recording that there's been a few fires I've been on and I'm sure you can attest to it that. There should have been a Mayday call, but nobody did call, and thankfully it didn't end bad, and you know everybody returned home safe to their uh, their station and their families. But you know there were a couple hairy moments on some fires I've been on where I'm like, uh, why wasn't a Mayday called? So I mean, what do you think on that? Oh, agreed, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I mean one fire in particular, and I'll just kind of share it real quick. Is uh, you know I was the driver on it, and so I was pumping the uh, lines, and my captain had gone in there, and his radio had died, and it was small, you know, little probably. 1500 square foot house and old style concrete block, everything from the 1960s here in Florida. So he's all the way in that house. The whole house is gone. I mean, it's already through the roof and everything. And all of a sudden everybody's running over to me because I was the first to engine. I was the attack engine. And they're like, you know, sound the uh, mayday, you know, with the air horns, you know, the one blast per second of the air horn for 30 seconds. And I'm like, this is like my first fire ripping through the roof as a driver engineer after being promoted. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm, alerting i'm activating the mayday through the pump or the pump panel with the air horn you know we're, we're clearing traffic and all that but there was no mayday call by my captain and he comes you know waltzing out you know smoke coming off his bunker gear and his helmet and he's like what's all the commotion about you know oh by the way the fire's out he's got a vent now so everybody's running around thinking oh my gosh we have a lost member in there and he's already in there knocking the fire down and walks out like huh what's that <laughs> what's going on i mean that was uh 
that was a pucker factor for me. I'm like, are you kidding me? First yeah. fire <laughs> as a driver. But I mean, have you been on calls like that where you've had to activate the uh, the bailout alarm with the air horn and whatnot? Situation deteriorated so quickly. It's been a while, but yes, I have. Okay. Where they pulled pulled us out. Yeah, yeah, and and that's one thing too is uh, the the fact is while you're in a fire, the conditions that are being seen on the outside by the drivers or the chief officers or next arriving units. That's important for them to kind of be doing their size up too. Even though you've done your initial size up as a first two officer, I think that it's huge that conditions are constantly changing. This is a dynamic environment we're in. So if it looked fine when I first went in, now all of a sudden there's fire through the roof. And I didn't, I don't know that because I've been fighting the fire in the room. I mean, that's an issue. So, I mean, what, what, what do you take on that? Yeah, I think there's been a culture shift over the last several years that, yes, we want to put out the fire and save property and obviously definitely save lives but we're not going to just fight a fire for the sake of fighting a fire and lose guys over it if there's no uh, loss of life to be had so i think that's where we're going with that and we've definitely got more proactive with the red teams because of the loss of life and lots of times these guys go down and there's nobody properly trained or informed on how to get individuals out so that has uh, that's changed in the modern day fire service yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on that. And and I remember being assigned to a rescue truck and it's just my, myself and my partner. We go to a working fire and they immediately assign my partner and I to RIT. Ever since I've been doing this job, I've seen it progress, like uh, like Ken said, that it is progressive and it's due to a loss of life and a lot of line of duty deaths and all that that we've looked at, we've learned from, and then we take a proactive approach to, hey, let's never have this happen again. But me personally, and I'm sure you can attest to it as well. Who's usually put on RIT? Used to be the guys on the rescue. Rescue guys. The newest, youngest guys or girls on a ambulance, basically. And two people. And I want to ta- touch on the Brett Tarver, Phoenix Fire Department line of duty death. Brett Tarver was a firefighter that died in the line of duty back in March 14th, uh, 2001. He was fighting the Southwest supermarket fire that broke out, became disoriented, ran out of air, uh, the carbon monoxide had gotten to him, and he got off the hose line. His fellow firefighter that was on the hose line with him, he was rescued, but they pulled him out in respiratory arrest. But then they t- it took a while to get firefighter Tarver out. And by the time they got to him, he was completely entangled because it was a supermarket. So the shelves had collapsed. They had all that debris. It, it was uh, zero visibility. And after that fire, the chief at the time was Alan Brunacini for Phoenix, and he wanted to completely do an overhaul of the department's policies on RIT, tactical policies on firefighting, commercial structure fires, you name it, to kind of look at it so this was never repeated again for that department and the fire service as a whole. And what they found, and, and they would get acquired structures from that were getting ready to be demoed that were about the size of the supermarket fire, and they ran over 200 RIT drills department-wide, and they're they're doing studies on time, like how long it took from a mayday to be called to a RIT activation to occur, and then for the RIT team to get to the firefighter and pull them out. And they actually did a whole like report on it. And um, it, it's actually a good read. So if you can get your hands on it, definitely uh, I recommend it. But the one thing that they found that it took about, it takes about 12 firefighters to get one firefighter out. And on top of that, those 12 firefighters, they said, anticipate a few of them having their own maydays for low air or whatever the case is. And out of those 12 that are supposed to go in and get one, you might have multiple maydays. So that's why getting out of that mindset of let's put the youngest, newest people on the RIT team. And two or three of them only can't happen anymore because, and I used to say this years ago, and I still say it a lot of times I call it checkbox writ. 
chief officers or command officers, whoever's in charge of a call, they're just going to go down their list of benchmarks they have to hit. You agree on that? Yes. So if they say on the radio, hey, rescue such and such, it's a two-person rescue, newest, youngest people on there possibly, you're writ. Okay, hey, hey, I hit it. I hit the benchmark. So you can't say I didn't call for writ. So if anything does go wrong, they kind of have an out in a way of saying I did call for it, even though we know after what Phoenix researched after Brett Tarver's death is you need at least 12 firefighters. Want to weigh in on that one? Well, we've definitely moved away from the two youngest guys on scene and the rescue truck personnel pulling up on scene. We've, we've progressed now. Certain departments for the department I work for, for a minimum of a three-man red team, uh, it's actually now the engine company, driver included, uh, will become a red. So basically, we have an engine strictly dedicated to red. And again, it, it varies on the size of the structure and the amount of personnel on scene and whatnot. But basically, three personnel geared up, ready to go, and it's a much more experienced group of guys than those two young individuals just sitting there watching the fire. So we've progressed in that manner. And there's been some fires in the past that actually, like Rob was saying, uh, 12 guys to rescue one and those individuals go down. If you kind of think about the Whisker fire, the um, cold storage, most of those guys were lost because they kept going in and they had to send more guys in for them. Mm -hmm. So that's related to what Rob's talking about. So it's definitely become mainstay in the fire service. And the equipment we use and whatnot is is more than what we used to use. Was when I started, it was just basically two guys and a set of irons. Now we have backup air bottles and the tick, tools, uh, you name it, we have it. Uh, so I think it's gotten more serious and more noticeable or taken a lot more notice over the last several years due mm-hmm. to fatalities in the fire service. Yeah, and not to like scare anybody, but if you ever take a legal issues class of the fire service, I highly recommend it one, especially if you're going to be trying to go up into an officer rank or a chief officer rank down the road. But the old theory of, and yes, firefighting is inherently dangerous. It is a dangerous job. You know, it's the old saying of people are running out, we're running in. That kind of mindset of anybody who dies in the line of duty is, well, firefighting is dangerous. They knew what they signed up for. You know, we'll learn from that and hopefully we don't have a repeat of that. But if there's any kind of negligence involved with tactical issues or uh, command presence and whatnot, and there was a line of duty death that should have not happened, obviously, because there was just negligence on tactics, then officers are being held accountable for it. That That's one thing you're going to learn in like a legal issues fire in the fire service class is it's no more. Yeah, it was a tough break. You know, we're going to learn from it, though. And everybody goes home and everybody's fine. No, it's a lot, a lot of departments across the country, their chief officers or command officers have been brought up on charges, lost their job, and are in jail now because of negligent tactics that caused a line of duty death on a uh, deteriorating fire. That should never have happened that way. So that's one thing to remember, too, is like uh, Ken said, RIT is very proactive now from what I've seen. And I mean, you've been in the fire service, what? 25 years? 20, I started 25. Okay. December. So I'm in my 20th year in the fire service. Okay. So we've been doing this for a long time and, and just the, the progress we've seen and it's noticeable. It's absolutely noticeable. We're, we're having captains assigned to the red team. It's an engine company or a ladder company. And they're the red team because we need that experience because what does an officer usually have? They have one, hopefully time on a lot of experience with that seniority Two, They should know how to read buildings. They should read know how to read smoke. They should know how to read fire behavior. So that's a good thing to have. And not to mention, like Ken said, 
we have the thermal imaging camera, which is huge compared to when, when I remember getting assigned to rid on a rescue truck, I didn't know to go around the building and, and look for other points of egress and whatnot. Where was the hose line going in? What, you know, how, if I had to go in, what would be the fast way to get to the firefighter that might be calling a matey off a hose line? I didn't know any of that in the beginning of my career. I didn't, I just stood there by the command vehicle with, you know, my bunker gear on and, and my pack and my irons and my partner would have the roof hook and we'd just be standing there waiting, like bored and sweating. We didn't know that we had to be proactive approach of what we like to call softening the structure, meaning if there's hurricane shutters, especially down here in Florida, start pulling them off. Because one thing, if a mayday is called, firefighters are trained to try to self-extricate. Okay, not just like, all right, let me just lay here on the ground and call a mayday if I'm you know, not entangled. No, we want them to try to get to a window, try to get to a door and self-extricate, you know, while relaying that on the radio to the RIT team and command. So, I mean, but I didn't know how to do any of that in the beginning. I just yeah. thought RIT was like, okay, I'll just stand here then by the command post. Yeah, it wasn't even considered any of that. It was just back when I started, the RIT team didn't have radios. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> You're was, dating yourself. Stop yeah, it. <laughs> you, just, you just sit there and wait. You were told to do something. It's something I've become proactive in. One of the things, like Rob was saying, investigations and things go sideways and fires, unfortunately, guys get lost in there and um, they become a fatality. Is um, they definitely go down the, the, the checklist and, and see if a writ was even established. Uh, that's basically part of the command system now for your every structure fire, regardless of the size of the building or the house or whatnot, is if a writ was in place. and. They'll hold you liable for that one if it's not um, instituted or it's not put in place upon, you know, early on, early on upon arrival. Next accountability is probably the next thing that we have uh, implemented in our in our command system on on fires. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's night and day mm-hmm. from when I started and probably when you started. Obviously, you have radios now, right? But <laughs> but uh, no, it's night and day with like one the training aspect of it. NFPA is really taking a proactive approach with it. I mean, one thing that when I was doing the research last night, um, you know, get some little finer details for this episode, I came across NFPA 1710 and 1720. And 1710 is standard for the organization and development of fire suppression operations, emergency medical operations, and special operations to the public by career fire departments. That's 1710. Now, 1720 is just the uh, volunteer uh, side of that standard. But in that standard, it says that a rapid intervention crew has to be established to be having a normal, good, functional, command-present type of incident to make sure that members operating, at, whether it's a special ops, a fire, or an emergency medical call, that we have some form of a rapid intervention group to come in there and get people out if you know something goes south at that type of call. Another proactive approach to NFPA was 1407, which is a standard for training fire service rapid intervention crews. This one basically lays out the required training program that Fire departments need to follow, whether you're your career department or your volunteer department, to make sure that everybody is aware of what a RIT crew has to do, like what you're doing on a call. If you're assigned it, just standing by the command post looking pretty, those days are over. We got to actually be proactive, meaning soften that structure, walk around, look for doors, check, do your 360 basically. Like the officer first arriving on a fire, they're going to jump out while the lines are being stretched and they're going to do a 360. We got to see all views of that, even though like, as a driver, we want to drive past the house because we want to make, you know, give the address to the ladder if it's, you know, multi-story or even just a single story. The fact is, when I drive past that building, whatever angle of approach I'm coming from, I'm given three sides of uh, the view. I'm given the Alpha, the Bravo, and the, at least the Delta side. So obviously the officer has to do 360 and check the Charlie side. So aside from 
me softening the structure with my partner, we're also looking for other hazards that we can relay to command and they could maybe put some emergency traffic out there like, hey, on the Charlie side, we have a pool back here and it's in the middle of the night, this fire, for example. So we have to make sure members don't fall in the pool. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing too is if I'm the uh, RIT, then, hey, we have power lines that broke off the house because they burned off basically and they're live right now. So we need obviously FPL down here in Florida, about Florida Power and Light, shut the power down, whatever utility company use. Things like that is not only designated for people that are not RIT. RIT teams need to call that out. Yes. As well. So just to give you an example, you know, and then also, like I was saying, is when I'm going doing my 360, I'm looking at where the hose lines are going. Is it going right through the front door on the alpha side? Or do I have, we have a backup line going through, you know, the Bravo or the Delta side through like a garage door or something like that to help fight this fire, or keep it in check with the initial attack line. I need to know that. So if I hear a mayday come in and they give me what assignment they had, we're on the backup line. Oh, the backup line's on the Charlie side. Or on the Delta side, I know where I have to go in at. I have a good point of origin to begin my search for that down firefighter. No, agree 100%. Uh, we're required to do a 360 if you're members of the RIT and make uh, contact face-to-face with either the safety officer or the incident commander so everybody's on the same page. And be aware of entry points and egress points and, like Rob was saying, soften the, the structure mm-hmm. and storm shutters, things along those. So yeah, you're, you're, you may not be physically involved in quote unquote firefighting responsibilities, but you have a lot of other responsibilities that need to be addressed as members of the red team. Now, what would you say if you were on a fire and they assigned your engine company to red Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, so you're doing your thing. You're doing your 360, getting your eyes and ears set up on that structure of what I have to do if a mayday is called. But then We'll say another officer comes along and says, hey, I need you and your engine company to throw a ladder, go up there and start vertically ventilating. Yeah, you don't break from the RIT team unless you're ordered to by the IC. Um, okay. Once you're dedicated to RIT, you are RIT. Unless mm-hmm. something, again, unless you're ordered by the incident commander, you're RIT's RIT. That, that's it. Now, let's, like, I guess, expand on that. You said if we're ordered by IC to break away from RIT, meaning they've already reassigned a new RIT, in place of me or how would you handle that like if you didn't hear like them give another engine company or a ladder company to take your place as writ because they need you on the roof well <laughs> uh, would you kind of be like hey uh is there another writ established or it's like a test question it is <laughs> this is a promotional test yeah definitely a promotional <laughs> question well i mean you yeah you need to make sure that the incident commander is aware that if they break he or she may not realize what they're doing at that point that inform them that okay not an issue with us breaking away for it to go do another test but they do need to be aware that mm-hmm. if they break down this for a team there needs to be one immediately uh, to fill the void right they may they that miss might be something they just forgot about it might be a, a misstep on their part or whatnot or whatever but yes there, there always has to be a red team in place at all times okay and again it, like you said it might be just an oversight but that's our job as us being like, I guess, de-escalated from RIT to another assignment. Mm-hmm. Hey, by the way, Chief, do you have uh, who's the other RIT team that's going to take our place? And, and actually, that's happened. I've been involved in that on several occasions where more units are coming in and like, oh, wait a second, we need more people. You guys are right here. You guys are going to go do this. And mm-hmm. these guys coming in are going to now take care of place. Okay. And that's good because it's just being cognizant as an officer yourself being reassigned. You want to make sure that, okay, 
if I'm being reassigned, I need to make sure I have a RIP team to back me up now because mm-hmm. I'm going to do some other task. Yeah. So it's it's good to kind of think that way, you know, and not just get that tunnel vision of like, oh, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. OK, I'll go up to the roof and not being too energetic. Well, yeah, it's remember your life is at stake, too, if you're, mm-hmm. you know, being yeah. reassigned away from RIP. So that's good to think about that. The other thing, too, is when we're doing RIP and you're assigned to it is and one thing that um at my previous department, I implemented with RIT SOP and people are going to be like, wow, you really, you know, took a lot of time to put that detail in there. But it's for reason. It's a good guideline because I had a list of equipment that should be required to be laid out, whether on like a small salvage cover, mm-hmm. whatever side I'm going to be kind of like making my staging area for my equipment as a RIT team so I can go back and get it or whatnot. Or other people that are coming up that, you know, they might add another crew. So I might get six people total on a RIT team. They know where the staging area is for the equipment for the RIP if yes. we have to go in. So in the SOP I wrote, I put that in there. I put all of it in there, whether, you know, from K-12 saws to eight-pound axe heads to, you know, pike bolt, you name it, it was on there. Just because. Rope bags, you know, taglines, bailout bags, all of it. It And, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing what I wrote. I mean, there was a lot, a longer list. But something to kind of think about. If you're looking into writing your own RIT SOP or maybe kind of reevaluating it and updating it, that might be some stuff to add to it if it's not in there already. Just so people know, especially new people that are, are coming into the department, that they know for a fact that if I get rid, I need to start grabbing this equipment as well. Aside from that, like Ken said, we want to make sure that if we are, and being RIT, you can be given other tasks, but still you're the RIT team. But hey, I need you to go and um, secure utilities on the uh, whatever side of the house. Hey, I need you to go and vent that back window on the Delta Charlie side or Charlie Delta side. That's fine. You know why? Because if a mayday is called, I can immediately drop what I'm doing and I can activate and go in and start working that mayday. Mm-hmm. So again, given the crazy example is I'm RIP team, but hey, I need you on the roof to do vertical ventilation. If a mayday is called and I'm on the roof cutting, we have a problem here because how can I abandon that roof so quickly? Yes. I can't. So the point is I can do stuff around the house because I'm already doing a 360. I'm already softening the structure. I can kind of take on a couple things, securing utilities, venting if they need to. Flaking out a backup line just to help out. But I I, wa- I don't want to be on a hose line that I can't abandon, for example, to go in and do a mayday. I mean, no, no, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, when one piece of the puzzle is removed, uh, it has to be replaced with another. Yeah. So yeah. overlapping. And that's a good, and that's a good um, aspect of us, one, noticing ourselves, like we already mentioned, but also the command presence of whoever's the IC is anticipating three, four steps ahead. Yes. You know, especially when they're outside watching conditions deteriorate or improve. And, and Ken already kind of mentioned it. Uh, one thing when I, and I served on a, um, a countywide writ committee where we were trying to like make a uniform policy, no matter what, because there's a lot of mutual aid, automatic aid type agreements where if we run a call with two other agencies, so we have three different agencies on scene, you know, to kind of sum it up and a writ activations occurring and a mayday occurs, we want to all be on the same page. So we, you know, I, I was representing my agency at the time on this uh, committee and we had everything laid out. We even had like from square footage of a structure, whether it was a residential to a commercial to a high rise, how many people will be needed for standing by for rent? We had that. So like, for example, anything that was like, you know, from 1500 square feet and less, we could get away with four. And then anything more than 1500, we would have six to eight, you know, and so on and so forth. So we, we had that laid out in the, in the policy. And um, it was very proactive. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, and again, it's taken that additional step of instead of being reactive, which unfortunately the fire service and a lot of agencies are after an incident occurs, 
proactive part is where we have to kind of change the culture of the fire service. And I think it is going that route. I really do see a lot of proactive approaches compared to, well, that happened on a call. So now all of a sudden it's all hands on deck and it's reactive. So, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed that oh, since yeah. you've been Absolutely. <laughs> in. Like, Absolutely. But I mean, I think it's getting proactive, more proactive approaches. You're getting a lot of, um, there's a lot more science out there too. Yeah, actually, um, believe it or not, I mean, believe it or not, the whole writ thing isn't that new. It's just, I think, certain departments in certain areas of the, of the country are um, becoming more proactive with it. But there's departments out there that actually just re, uh, respond to strictly writ teams. Yeah. You know, they're just like, respond to such and such location for such and such fire. And those teams are just strictly writ. Yeah. That's what they do. That's what they do. It's actually funny that you say that because on that countywide writ policy we were coming up with, on your, your dispatch protocol for like the county that I was working in, our normal residential response was three engines, a ladder, two rescues, a battalion, and a EMS captain for safety. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then with this countywide writ policy that came out, we actually said, no, 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 no. Have your initial three engines for the attack, your ladder and all that, but add a heavy rescue. Mm-hmm. Fully, yeah. fully staffed. Not like one person driving a heavy rescue to the call. That doesn't count. No, but a fully staffed heavy rescue, or if they're not available, another engine or a ladder company. And when they are laid out on their like progression of where they're falling for that call, they are notified by the dispatch. You are responding strictly as writ. So they're already in that mindset and route to that call. Okay. We're going to 360 that building. We're going to get, this is the equipment I need. This is what we're going to do. They're already in that mindset. Yes. So that was one thing we actually added into the uh, policy. But I left that department and that county uh, beforehand, so I don't know if they actually that came to fruition at all. But it was written in the policy before I left. I remember. Anyway, yeah, no, it's it's a lot of departments are already doing that, and they've been doing that for years. You know, I know a a lot of northern departments do that. Yes, Um, bigger cities. They don't call them writ teams up there; they call them uh, fast teams. I think. Okay. Firefighter, but it's basically another uh, acronym for their version of writ. Mm -hmm. So. Now, let's talk about some NIM stuff. And, and you and I talked about this a little bit before we started recording today. There's the, the NIMS terminology, and that's basically trying to make a common terminology across the industry. So when we're on these type of calls and I'm running with a neighboring department or multiple neighboring departments from automatic aid or mutual aid, whatever the case is, we all want to make sure that we have the same type of terminology because you know some departments may use 10 codes. And my department doesn't. So when they start spouting off 10 codes on the radio, I'm lost in translation. I'm like, who, why is, mm-hmm. why is there a police officer on our radio channel or what's going on here? You know, cause they're dropping 10 codes like crazy. So we like to have, you know, plain English, plain terminology and normal terminology for our line of work. So we keep saying RIC, rapid intervention team, but NIM says RIC, rapid intervention crew. So we're going to use it interchangeably for this episode, but you know, RIC, RIC, whatever, but to, Established the fact that NIMS has RIC as that common terminology across the industry is, is a good thing. They also throw out their IRIC, which is Initial Rapid Intervention Crew. And that is your two in, two out rule. Now, there are times, and we wrote this in the policy too, and I'm actually uh, my current department, we have this in our SOP as well. And I'm sure your current department, you do too. But if you arrive on scene and you determine that there is a imminent threat to life, you can forego the two and two out rule, which is what OSHA requires. You know, that's that's part of their code of federal regulation is, you know, two and two out. Two people are making entry. Two people are on the outside as your initial rapid intervention crew. But just say I arrive first. 
my next in unit is you know two minutes away and we got heavy fire and there's somebody screaming that my kid's in that room right there. Now we start getting into the vent enter search type stuff, you mm -hmm. know, but this is foregoing your two and two out rules. So that's your, you know, you, you can do that because there's imminent life threat. Where I used to work, there was a department that had adaptive response, meaning they didn't have a full, fully staffed fire station. They had a engine and they had a rescue truck in there, but they only had three people. And there was a fire, a working fire in the area down the street from the fire station. Well, they jumped in the fire engine. That's the adaptive response aspect of it. Took it to the fire. They got there, confirmed it was a working fire. But the next in units were, I don't even know how many minutes. I'm just guesstimating here. We'll say like three minutes away, okay? Uh, again, I'm not confirming that number. It's just I'm throwing it out there for this, this example. That crew had three people assembled, a captain, a driver, and a firefighter. They did not make entry. But here's the uh, thing for their defense. There was no imminent life threat. Everybody had been evacuated. So there was, it was just a house that was on fire. And they couldn't go in on the hose line to make that initial attack because they didn't have another person standing outside. So they had to wait. But meanwhile, the citizens are yelling at them, cursing at them, screaming, why aren't you in there putting this fire out? My house is burning. The homeowner's yelling at them too, which, you know, come on, it's stressful. Your house is burning down and yeah. the firefighters are standing out there. I get that. I get where they're coming from. But these firefighters are really, we have to kind of follow the, the law. And OSHA is a law, even though Florida is not an OSHA state. But they're, it's to the point where we're so scared to do anything because of, you know, liability and legality stuff. And anyway, the house ended up being very, very badly destroyed, complete total loss. And I mean, they put the fire out eventually, but I mean, to that point, that initial of, nope, no limit life threat, we're not going in. I don't have another person to back me up. So I don't have the two and two out. And that, that occurred many, many years ago down south. But um, I mean, what's your take on that? I mean, do you think that we're getting to that point where we're scared to kind of act in a lot of ways? Because we're, <laughs> we're, oh, yes. are we going to be sued yes. because I didn't do the right thing? I think it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yes, yeah, so the legalities, that's uh, also part of the culture shift in the fire service legalities, but I do agree with what you're saying. I guess you could say I think we're, as a whole, maybe more cautious now than we were several years ago, just due to legalities and really uh, risk a lot, save a lot, risk a little, save a little. That mentality, I think, True. is really starting to be instituted into the fire service more and more. Right. Uh, it, it, it's probably all reality. It's it's a good thing, most likely. I yeah. Mean, houses can be rebuilt, but can't replace a human life. So no, no you're I think definitely that's, right. I think that's where we're. I think that's the proper way to to foresee the future in the fire service. Yeah, and, and I agree. I think that's a huge thing. It's a great thing because blindly running into a structure fire just because mm -hmm. you know that's what they told me to do in fire school. Well, I think the fire schools are changing that mentality as well. You know, they're they're kind of creating that like, wait a minute, you know. And I think you summed it up the best. You know. Risk a lot to save a lot. Risk a little, save a little. Because unfortunately, like if you go through NIOSH line of duty death reports, not one of those line of duty death reports have ever said the fire department did everything exactly the way it should have been done. It was perfect. It was just an unfortunate yeah. event. You will never see that in a NIOSH report. I guarantee you. Usually there's some kind of shortfall. You know, Even though they might have done everything that per their policy and all that, there's usually a shortfall somewhere, whether it's accountability, radio communications, who knows, you know, but that's the one thing we're learning from is a lot of these line of duty deaths. Yes, we learn from them now and they make us better as a career, as a fire service. Mm -hmm. So we try not to repeat that. But unfortunately, like our line of work is a trial by fire kind of thing. No pun yeah. intended. Yeah. But um, it's like we didn't realize that was a thing. Somebody died doing it. OK, now we're going to implement training. We're going to implement a new NFPA standard. 
we have a new tactical way of handling that because, wow, that came out of left field on that call, you mm-hmm. know, and unfortunately, you know, somebody was injured or killed. So again, it's it, one thing I can recommend to everybody on here. And I know you probably do it with your crew, print out a NIOS guide or a NIOS, uh, see, here's my hazmat talk, print out a NIOS chemical guide and go through that. No, print out a NIOS line of duty death report and go over it with your crew or mm-hmm. send it out to them and say, Hey, read this at your leisure. We'll talk about it at dinner tonight. Yes. You know, we'll do a little in-service tabletop training, but read it on your own leisure and then let me get your perspective on it. And then you get a conversation, you get a nice dialogue going with your crew. And then you can expand on and say, okay, if this ever happened to us, how would we handle this for mm-hmm. our department's culture and our SOPs and our tactics here? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a great Yo, I, conversation I, starter. I, I, I do that. Yes, I, I agree with you. So. But for anybody listening to the show, uh, definitely, you know, if you're not doing that, just some food for them. I mean, we're not going to change how you operate. Do you do your daily business at your department or your your uh, crew if you're an officer or whatnot? But it's just food for thought. You know, we're just strictly educational here. Uh, we're talking from experience ourselves, and we're 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 students of the fire service. Mm-hmm. Ken and I are students of the fire service. Most people I talk to that are passionate about this job, that want to make it better, make their department better, make their career better, they're students of the fire service. Then you come across the people that are like. I get two days off and I get health insurance, but, uh, you know, this is my part-time job because I have a electrician job on the side, you know, mm-hmm. that's my full-time job. You run into those too, but you know what? Hey, that's fine. But if they can kind of maybe take a little bit to themselves about, oh yeah, I'll read that line of duty death report. Cool. Yeah. Yes. And then we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Not a problem. Hey, you made a change in the way they think you didn't change everything about them with, you know, loving this job and being a student of the fire service, but you made a change and that's good. It starts, you know, small. When we're talking about like with, Writ. And I think why firefighters are getting, well, one, we're getting further into the buildings because why? Our gears are getting better. You know, our gears are getting better. We're not noticing that intense heat right away until we're like, oh, we're already past that breaking point and I'm already in too far. I can't get out or I'm disoriented, whatever the case is. Now I have to call a mayday. So I think the advance in the gear, and not to say that's not a good thing. I mean, no, it's a great thing, you know, but the fact is maybe it's giving us a little bit more of a false sense of security, like like we're invincible in a way mm-hmm. to a point. So the other thing too is, Ken, why do you think firefighters don't call maydays? I definitely think it's a little bit of a pride factor. Heck yeah, it is. Heck yeah, it is. There, I mean, I've been in a fire or a couple fires where I was like, where that little thing pops into your head where you're like, I might have to call a mayday here. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. And like Ken said, it was a pride thing. I'm like, no, 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 no. I only have two years on. I can't do that. No, no, no. I can't. Oh, no. You know, that that's career or, ending know, right there. Or to, to <laughs> an experience to recognize they're in trouble. That too, yeah. The I 100% agree with that. You know, lack of experience. I think a lot of it too is the culture though of the pride. Like Absolutely. The, the, um, or the overconfidence. Like, eh, I can handle this. Mm-hmm. And then the more you struggle, the more you're in deeper and deeper. And now you're like, oh. And then- a lot of times they don't call Mayday still. I don't know if there's a statistical number out there. There probably is, but I'm sure that if we looked at line of duty deaths, how many of them actually called a Mayday? Before before command had realized like, hey, we need to do a par and they didn't respond. And that was the only way they realized, oh, we have a lost member here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, so. they, yeah, if you listen to a lot of the radio traffic, they always say lots of times they just ne- they were speaking, but they never, ever called a Mayday. They were talking, you know, here, I'm there, yeah. do this, do that. But no, they never really officially called a mayday. And that, that's not that uncommon. Yeah. So let's dive into, so we talked about, okay, our gear's getting better. We're getting deeper into the buildings. Uh, we're not recognizing, like, the amount of heat that we are taking on till you know, it might be a little bit too far in. It's a little too late. The fact is, don't be scared to call a mayday. Let me just make that 
point very clear. If you get that little gut feeling where you might be in trouble, call the mayday. If you can self-extricate, because a command officer might say, are there any windows or doors nearby? Did you What did you pass through? They might try to coach you through it where you can try to self-extricate. Mm-hmm. And then if you self-extricate, mayday's canceled, RIT team goes back to where they're staging and doing their thing, and the operation continues on. But the fact is, you called the mayday. You got everybody alerted. Now, another thing too with mayday activation and RIT team activation is, and this is a major thing, if your department does it already, um, my hat's off to you. If it's something that you are now realizing like, oh, that's a great idea. It takes a lot of training and a lot of discipline. Again, I don't know if your department does this, but do you have, if you ever call a mayday, do you switch tack channels? We're supposed to. Yes. Y- yes. Because there's not uh, talking. Yes, we are. Okay. That way there's not communicating over the same channel, but yes, we yeah. do. Because if we're on that same channel and there's a, may- a mayday going on, guess what's still going on too? Firefighting operations, mm-hmm. rescue That's operations, awesome. or search and rescue operations. So again, it takes a lot of discipline. I mean, a lot of training because there are, and you'll, and if your department's already doing it or you're thinking about doing it, you're going to see a lot of shortfalls in the beginning of the radio channel switching. So what you're going to do is if you're on, we'll say TAC 1, okay, for this working fire. So an example for the, for the show, TAC 1, Mayday's called. Okay, Mayday and RIT and whoever's going to be kind of overseeing that RIT operation as a commander, maybe the safety officer should be taking that, I would think. You're going to stay on TAC 1. All other operations on that fire ground switch to TAC 2 mm-hmm. yep, or whatever. Exactly. You know, We don't want to switch the RIT to another TAC channel. Yeah, Keep them on the same one. It's too much stress as the person calling the and the RIT team to start switching channels. I have enough going on that they don't need to. Two, they might not be able to get their hand down to the uh, radio to switch yes, the channel exactly. too. So you know they're communicating on their lapel mic, but I can't get my hand down. I'm entangled down to my main radio on my hip. So again, lots of training. Don't think that you can implement this tonight and start practicing it tomorrow frontline at a working fire with no training. Mm-hmm. If you're doing it and you're thinking about it, train, train, train. When everybody's proficient, then you can implement it. That's just my two cents on that. You know. Agreed. Now, we have a couple of theories here, different, well, not theories, but like trains of thought on this. Lunar or the three W's when you're calling a mayday, if you're the mayday firefighter. I've just always been taught lunar. Same here. Same here. We're getting away from Lunar, though, going to the three W's. And reason is, and if your department uses Lunar, it's not wrong. Three W's is not wrong either. But the theory behind this is, now here's the theory part. The theory behind getting away from Lunar is that's a lot to kind of remember. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's a kind of it's a decent size acronym, you know. I mean, we're looking at it now and you're probably sitting there if you're listening to this like, what? No. And you spout it off right now. But problem is, you're not under any kind of stress. You're not in a mayday situation right now. So three W's, who, what, where, mm-hmm. or who, where, what. So what is that? That's probably what they're going to get out if they're entangled and they're freaking out and they're they're on the radio and they're just screaming on the radio that they're mayday, you know, and they're going to call mayday three times, mayday, 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 and then they're going to do their three W's, okay? So who they are, what their unit is, and if you want to have a policy where don't say your name because who's listening to the radios, news outlets, right? Yeah. And next thing you know, they're showing up at your house, telling your wife, kids, or whatever, hey, your husband's lost in a fire, or your wife's lost in a fire. How do you think about that? We don't need that, okay? That's extra stress on the family. But what unit you're on and your position on that unit. I'm the second firefighter on the rescue. Okay, so we have an idea on this rescue, for example, rescue one. Great. So where? Where are you? I was working off the hose line, the initial attack hose line through the front door on the alpha side. Done. Okay, so we have a good origin point for the RIT team. 
and what. So that's where we get into what is going on. What equipment do they need to bring in? Are you entangled? Do you have a collapse on you? Do they need saws? Do they just need uh, tin snips to cut wires if you're wrapped up in wires? What is it that they need to bring to get you out? And then again, like I mentioned before, the command officer might say, are you able to self-extricate? If you are, try to self-extricate and keep in communication. That way we're not letting the RIT team go all the way into where you were and now you're not there anymore. Now they're lost. So that could get worse too. So again, it's a very proactive approach with training and it all comes out of the training. You can never simulate a real Mayday situation because that's just like completely a different situation, obviously. But you can simulate pretty darn close to it with like entanglements and, and hiccups that are going to happen. Yes. You know? So, I mean, how often do you find that you're doing RIT training? Uh, here and there. I mean, we we do several times a year at our training facilities. And really just uh, after that following review of videos and written material and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it, basically every time we do any type of interior fire training, Ritz thrown in. Okay, that's good. Ritz. That's good. Now, what about at the company level? I know that's department-wide, you know, hey. Well, that's, that, that's really at the company okay, level. Okay, at the company level. Mm-hmm. All right. Again, it's like one of those things where it's like, in a way, we get hot and heavy about RIT for a while, and then we kind of let it fall by the wayside. Because, I, I mean, we have so much we have to train on. We have so many areas of firefighting and tactics and – and then if you're on a specialty team, throw that in there too. If you're on a TRT, you got rope, you got, you know, collapse, you got, you know, vehicle extrication, hazmat, sky's the limit on hazmat, what we have to know. If you're on a dive, you have all that stuff on top of having to do RIT, advancing lines, you know, so there's a lot we have to do. So a lot of times I find that RIT kind of falls by the wayside in a lot of aspects of things. Okay. So again, we're just kind of doing this episode to bring attention to it. Like, you know, get back out there and train, whether it's in the bay in the day room or just talking about something at the dinner table or whatever, you know, company training. It's all about training when it comes to RIT. Now, the other thing too I want to get into is let's throw out the scenario of, okay, we're on a RIT team. We have a mayday. So we're being activated. We go in and one thing that we were kind of um, putting together in that countywide policy I was mentioning was the on deck approach. So we have our initial RIT team go in, right? So that could be two or three people. And we call them the recon group. So they're going to go in. They're going to um, tie off. And one thing we also recommend is if you have any kind of taglines, try to make them different colors. Mm-hmm. So if the recon group goes in, then they have like the red with, and you can get like the rope with like little reflective braids in it and whatnot. So, okay, they take the red one in. We know that's the recon group. They're going in there. They're going to find the firefighter from the point of where they said they were, whether they did lunar or the three W's for their mayday. And then we're going to package them. So we're reconning, we're going to check the air, we're going to check the pack, we're going to check the integrity of their mask. Remember, the last thing you ever want to do on a RIT operation when you're getting to the firefighter is change out the mask. Now, if the mask is damaged or they don't have one on, yeah, you're absolutely going to a mask change out. But if they're fine, they're all just entangled, don't touch the mask. We don't need to change out the mask, all right? Remember, you're going into a situation that was bad and now is even worse because we have a mayday. So... It's not like the situation's probably getting any better. It's going, I'm going into an even worse situation as a RIT team member, you know? Yeah. So we want to say, and I'm throwing this out there. I mean, you do, you got, like I said, you, you do what you do at your department. You do what you, you know, you follow your policies and procedures, okay? But this is just some food for thought. Recon goes in, packages the firefighter. If you bring the RIT pack in, you hot fill them if you need to, if they're running low on air. And then from there, if you're unable and you don't have enough air to begin getting them out, then you call for the RIT team rescue. So that's another two or three people waiting outside the door. They tie off to the tagline with their own, and then they follow yours up to where you are. 
Now they're the ones that are going to basically drag the firefighter out. So re rescue, I'm sorry, recon, you've done all the work with hot filling them, integrity of the mask, disentangling them if that's the case. Rescue comes in and they're going to drag them out. They're going to do all the muscle work of pulling them out because you're already spent. Because one, when you're rest recon, I mean, what do you what do you think is going on when you're recon as a red going in for that firefighter? To get them in, get them out as fast as possible. Right. So if I'm recon though, I'm already spent because I went in kind of like I have an idea of where that down firefighter said they were. So I'm going into the unknown right now. But then I find them. Everything's good. We hot fill them with the uh, bottle, disentangle them. But now that writ rescue. They have a clean shot following that rope right to where we are, where that firefighter is, and just drag them back out. So they're really – the rescue is doing the muscle work, but they don't have that unknown factor of like kind of blindly feeling around going off of like a point of origin is how I look at it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a straight shot for them. Yes. And then obviously the on-deck approach is recon is going in, rescue is going in to drag the firefighter out, and then we have another RIT group to protect – those firefighters that are getting the down firefighter out. So that's like what we termed in that policy, the on deck approach. Yeah. You know, so any baseball fans out there, but I mean, what's your take on that? I mean, compare yeah. that countywide policy I was talking about compared to your policy. Similar, very similar. Very similar. Yeah. And I think that's the way a lot of the fire service is going. They're kind of getting, and a lot of these templates are online. You just type mm -hmm. in writ policy and the work's pretty much done for you. You just got to put your department name in there and some of the finer details, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's what I take out of it. So when we get to a down firefighter, what's the first thing we're going to probably do? Just um, figure out what's going on with them. Okay. Are they talking? Yes. But Are they able to get out on their own or do they need help yeah. getting out? Did they break their leg and now we have to kind of package them? And one thing that you can add to your cache of equipment to bring in is a plastic sked. Mm -hmm. Roll the firefighter on there, especially if they have like a broken leg or they're a back injury or something, they can't move really well. Put them on there. And then when that rescue comes in the other half of the uh, team it's an easy slide down following that rope right out where they came in at the other thing too is when we get to that firefighter we got to be able to communicate so that that pass device has to be turned off because they say if you go into a mayday situation like you're the mayday firefighter activate your pass device and take your flashlight put it on the ground and point it straight up to the ceiling that's what they say and if you have a tool yes bang on the wall so that we can use sound sight if we're able to and at that point you get to the down firefighter as a writ team Pass device has to go off because we got to be able to communicate with him or her. So at that point, we check the integrity of the mask, make sure it's good, check the air, and then kind of get an idea if they're talking to us, what's going on. Now, I believe as of July, according to the um, U.S. Fire Administration, we've had 48 firefighter line of duty deaths this year so far. Majority of them are cardiac related. This goes back to if you get to that down firefighter and not responding. That might be a cardiac event. It could be. It could be anything, really. Mm -hmm. But it could be. It might be more or less a cardiac event compared to everything else. You know, because they broke it down. If you go on the the U.S. Fire Administration website, they break it down by how many line of duty deaths to date for this year already, and what they were. Some of them were crush injuries because they had a collapse happen. Some of them were shot and assaulted on scene. They they, they consider that an assault, but it was a gunshot wound that killed the firefighter, for example. Stuff like that. But the cardiac events and medical emergency events, top of the list, mm -hmm. you know, and that's still the, the number one killer of us in fires, like when we go down, unfortunately, you know, but then you throw the other variables in there of a collapse or burns. What else? What, do you, what else you got on that one? I mean, that's pretty much about it. I think we covered. I think we covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I was worried too. I thought this was going to be like a two hour episode. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of editing. Yes. I'm not going to lie. 
It really is. But I think we covered a lot. Any final thoughts, though, on, on RIT as a whole? Um, Just stay proactive. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. That's, <laughs> that's the best. Um, good advice right there. Again, get out there and train. Don't be scared to call a mayday if you have that gut feeling that you're in, in a predicament, okay? It can always be canceled if it turns out that it wasn't that bad, wasn't that serious. That's but correct. what if it is very serious and you're like, I think I can get out. And then by then you're already burning your air. And a lot of firefighters run out of air because they didn't call it in time. So the RIT team in a way is kind of behind the eight ball with getting to you in time to be able to hot fill your, your bottle with the RIT pack. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. Now, real quick though conclude this episode with our writ bags what are we looking for what what should our writ mask not have in it one there's a not few th- yeah there's a few things and i found this uh, actually quite a few times at various departments you should not have a vibro alert regulator on your writ mask mm-hmm. okay the ones we wear in yes we want to have a vibro alert absolutely but the writ mask itself and regulator no uh vibro alert the other thing too is you don't want to have a nose cone in your rip mask because just say we have a breached mask put our rip mask on them from the pack that nose cones is a bear you know trying to put it on somebody who's unconscious or fighting you because they have carbon monoxide poisoning and they're just they they don't know what's gone they're hypoxic basically so no nose cone no vibro alert the other thing too is on the spider straps of your scba mask for that rip mask make sure you put some large o-rings on it okay like big big key ring kind of o-rings because when you have your fire gloves on, you want to be able to put your thumbs through it. And remember, it's all gross motor skill at this point. And then pull it tight on that firefighter's face if you're doing a mask change out. Remember, that's the last thing you ever do is a mask change out. You can hot fill them. You can buddy breathe with them. And then it goes to the mask change out. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like our hierarchy of when I get to a down firefighter. All the things I got to look at. Yes. So, I mean, w- w- anything to add to that, like for the mask, for equipment that you want to bring in your rip pack initially? What do you, what do you recommend should be the bare minimum if you were setting up a rip pack for your department that you should have equipment wise, tool wise. Well, definitely the SEMA components that are going to mm-hmm. be able to get somebody out. If you know, like you said, you have to do a mass change, which you want to make us a last resort. But the components that you need for SCBA for a quick fill, the bottles, mask, rope, strobes, that's what we rope. That's what we have in our, in our rescue packs. Okay. <clears throat> that's good. And then, we have a set of tools and whatnot extra. We just take off. We take off the truck. Okay. Uh, we actually kind of teach unless that individual absolutely needs air, grab them and go. Don't waste time. You know how you got in. You know how you get out. Just grab them and go. Lots of times, by the time you get them, switch on the bottles or whatever the case may be, you probably could have been out of the structure. Right. You're not deep in there. Just grab the handles on the pack or the rescue straps if their jackets have that now and get going right the drds and whatnot mm-hmm. now if for some reason maybe they have spare gear that's still in date and they can still use it but it doesn't have a drd per the nfpa standards that require now you would convert their scba to a harness right mm-hmm. okay so again that goes back to training and if you're doing that kind of training and that's so easy you can do that in the air conditioning in the day room you know one or two of you to dress out in bunker gear air pack on block out the mask and do it with just gross motor skill of converting the, the waist strap of your SCBA to a harness through the legs and whatnot. Then you can drag them out. What I carry in my pockets myself is I carry a large D-ring. I have webbing through it with a, a water knot. And then I have a smaller D-ring, again, with a water knot on it. What I use that for is on my harness that's built into my bunker pants, if I had to drag, just say I had to drag Ken out of a fire, I would get to him. What I would do is I would convert his 
harness SCBA straps to a harness. I would take that large D ring and I would clip it through his shoulder strap and his waist strap all as one unit. Basically, I'm making a five point harness like what race car drivers mm-hmm. use during driving. I'm making it with this large D ring. I take the smaller D ring, I clip it to my harness that's built into my bunker pants because that's a whole intricate system itself for bailout. So it's going to hold. I know it is. And if conditions are really, really crappy and it's high heat and I kind of have to stay low to the ground, I can throw my leg over that harness where it's between my legs and I can actually crawl out hands and knees with Ken attached to that large D ring and that piece of webbing I have and drag him behind me. Mm -hmm. But I can use my momentum of crawling, like almost like bear crawling out, you know? And that's one thing I carry in my pockets just for that. And the other thing too is a little side note, not RIT related, that if you're ever doing a uh, portable standpipe up the side of a uh, apartment building, you can use that large D-ring and kind of do a girth hitch with the smaller D-ring and clip it to the railing when you charge that feeder line with the gated Y on it if you're doing any kind of elevated standpipe. Side note, just throwing it out there. <laughs> but like Ken said, like strobes are a huge thing. Because just say you go in and you get that firefighter package and then you're running low on air and you got to go now. Then we got that on deck approach going. But I tell Rhett Rescue as I'm passing him on that rope, hey, follow, follow the rope and the strobe lights there. You can't miss it. It's attached to the firefighter. Now, that's another thing, too, is people will say, do we attach the search line to the firefighter or to a uh, stationary object near the down firefighter? That's like the million-dollar debatable question yeah. that I've heard for years when I've been dealing with Rhett. What do you think on that? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, no, but I just want to get kind of your opinion on it. <laughs> I don't really have an answer. That okay. was skin a cat. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I always told majority of the people tell me just don't tie it to the firefighter, but a stationary object. Okay. With, if, you, if you can find one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I can't, well, the firefighter is the stationary object for now. At least when I have that other group come through, they're going right to the firefighter because it's mm-hmm. attached to them. Mm-hmm. So, but I think the uh, theory is too, is if it's attached to the firefighter, and you're already in a bad condition, low vis and all that, you want to unhook them on that because as you're trying to drag them out, you're going to get tangled in that rope. I think that's why a lot of people say don't attach it to the firefighter because now it's just one other thing that you're going to trip on as you're trying to drag it down firefighter out and entangle them more. I see the point on that, but I also see the point on this is a dirty rescue. We're grabbing them and we're going. Mm -hmm. If I trip over a rope, I'll probably be able to stand back up, hopefully, but we're going. I don't have time for this. Like you said, get in, get out. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do that's fancy in there when you're packaging a firefighter. You really can. But again, it takes training and proficiency. It's not like, hey, I learned it two months ago and I haven't trained on it since. Uh, don't use it then, you know? Pretty much. So, but um, I think that, I think we ta- we covered a lot today. We did. We did. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of this episode. I'm not going to lie. Sounds like we, <laughs> we hit a lot of things and that's good. So I think we're going to wrap it up here. Um, again, if you're... Not following us on Facebook yet? Follow us on Fire Department University Facebook page where we give updates. We put all the links for our episodes when they drop on there. Also, if you are, we're also on Podbean, which is where our outlet is, where we post everything. But we're also on everything else with the major podcast outlets, which is Stitcher, you know, iTunes. So we're on the major outlets uh, and you can get it and we're always updating it. We're going to try to get better about doing episodes. I'd say hopefully depends on scheduling too. Every two weeks, you know. But uh, for right now, we're trying to get to it when we can because we've got a lot going on in our personal lives and our work schedule, too, at the fire department. So anyway, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Follow us and be safe out there. and Stay tuned for our next episode. Have a good one. Bye.